Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Wintering Sessions with me, Catherine May. Over the coming weeks, I've an array of amazing guests who'll be talking about the cold seasons in their lives, how they survived them and what they learned. Today, I'd like to welcome an activist, writer and Instagrammer extraordinaire whose first book, Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring, is published on the 11th of June. Penny Winsor, Welcome. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to talk in person. Well, not in person, but over a line rather than just emailing. I know, like hearing people's real voice is such an yeah. amazing moment, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> Mind you, you are very, very good at talking on Instagram, aren't you? I, I see you every day having a little chat with the camera, which I really admire. I didn't used to do it as often, but since lockdown, I've been doing it a lot more because I think, um, I think with so many of us feeling generally disconnected mm. um from people in real life i've found that i've really enjoyed seeing people's faces and hearing their voices on stories and so i sort of made the decision to do a bit more and then i have such amazing conversations come out of me doing that it just kept yeah. me going i suppose i think i just i used to do them occasionally when something felt easier to explain with my own voice than to kind of write but um 
yeah I've been in, I've been enjoying that strangely and also I'm getting used to doing it so it yes, doesn't it doesn't feel like a big deal to do it anymore whereas of course in the beginning when you first do them you're like oh this feels intimidating but yeah the more you do it the more it feels um natural normal I <laughs> yeah. yeah I will make sure I put um all of your links later in the show notes because I think everybody would love to connect with you um but I I was certainly posting myself the other day about the need for us and particularly for you know women in their middle years um mm-hmm. to post pictures of their own faces we so often hide behind the camera or yes. we kind of you know slightly blur or disguise our faces and I feel an increasing commitment to put my face out there and to mm. be the age I am, the weight I yes. am, you know, yes. the level of beauty or not that I am. I just, I want to see more normal faces. I don't want to see people's perfect kind of overstyled selves. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that's what's so amazing about stories. I love mm. that it has a throwawayness to it, a very a casualness to it, if you if you like, where it, I just, um, I just feel like I could pop on there and I, and I, I don't, think I've worn makeup since lockdown I mean I may I think maybe once or twice I put mascara on but I mean anyway I'm very some days I do and some days I don't I'm a bit casual about that anyway but I just I love that it it, the sort of ephemeral nature of it I suppose and it I feel um I feel a bit I guess more connected to the other accounts that you put their face on um on whether it's on their feed or on their stories um somehow as well and you know behind that is I feel just great sadness at the way that women quite often hate their own appearance so much I think there's real this, wounding well because I'm 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 a professional photographer as well so um this is something I come up against all the time mm. I I'm I'm an interiors photographer but I'm I, whenever I'm doing a house story for a magazine I always do a portrait um and I often do like a lifestyle picture as well but you know I mean so often I'm shooting a woman's home um so often there's somebody in between you know 30 and 60 um, more likely between 40 and 60 because you know homeowners yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and they're not professional models and often they haven't been photographed very many times before and every single time oh I'm really bad I'm really bad at having my photo taken oh I don't oh, really like this it is me. I'm every it. single time and and every single time I say I promise I'll be quick I promise I promise you're not going to hate it I promise you can look <laughs> and you can veto any that you really don't like I promise it's not going to be that bad every single time I do it within two or three minutes and they look and they're like, oh, it's really all right. It's fine. And I'm like, yeah, no, look, it's beautiful. And they're like, oh, I quite like that. I actually quite like, do you mind actually emailing me one of those? It's actually quite nice. And without fail every time. And I think, you know what it is? It's I think we don't have any practice of being behind yeah. the camera. We get into this habit yeah. of never, ever taking a photo of ourselves. And it's definitely a habit thing. Yeah. And, and it's, it's I think, a kind of skill set, isn't it? I, but I have to say, I am definitely those people. I don't mind taking a selfie because I feel in control. Yes. But yeah. I hate having other people take my photo. I feel hideously self-conscious. And I did, oh God, I don't know if I should share this. I did once have the most awful experience um being photographed for a magazine where I came out in tears and felt completely humiliated and since then yeah I um it was I won't say what magazine it was for because I actually did soon afterwards and got told off by a load of journalists who said I'd never get covered in this town again it was she magazine um (laughs) (laughs) it it was about 10 years ago now when my first book was out and they took me to a studio and before I even turned up Um, they asked me my dress size 
And I emailed and I actually said very clearly, I used to have an eating disorder and I feel very self-conscious about this. I'm also six feet tall and nothing fits me. So I'd really rather bring my own clothes. Uh, And when I turned up, they'd supplied clothes two sizes too small for me because I'd said I was a 16. They gave me size 12 jeans and five inch heel shoes. And I said, I can't fit into these jeans. And they said, oh, well, give it a try. And I sort of said, well... If I could fit into size 12 jeans, I'd have told you I was a size 12. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. And this is the thing is I think this is so, this is common. And I have, that's why I have so many people say to me afterwards, oh, no, this is not like any experience I've had yeah. before. And I would say, I think, oh, sorry to any male photographers listening. There is a difference being photographed by a woman, I think, yeah, um, I than being photographed by a man. And I, I'm... I don't mind actually having, I don't love photos of myself, but I don't mind having it taken. I think I spent my most of my 20s as a, an assistant to fashion photographers and wow. I spent all of my time in front of a Polaroid camera because of lighting tests and stuff. Mm. So I, I got very accustomed to having my photo taken and I just yeah. don't really, I don't, I don't necessarily love the result ever or sometimes they're fine, <laughs> but I don't, but you I don't do. mind the process. I'm, I'm, the process to me is fine. It's, it's kind of a work process and I think it's I was saturated in it and I got over it but people can be yeah people not all photographers are nice no sorry photographers out there they're not all nice (laughs) well I learned my lesson and I um I have one photographer that I let do my portraits now but sadly she's moved to Sweden so I have to like well you know what as soon as lockdown's ended I will come (laughs) I need I will come to you and I'll do I'll do I'll do some author portraits for you I'd be very happy to I'd be thrilled to well let's do that um Okay, so let's get to the subject in hand because um, you're my first guest, which is really exciting. Um, I'm very excited about this podcast. Very, very excited. Yeah, well, I've wanted to do this for ages. And so since I published Wintering, I've had so many letters from different people telling me about their wintering experiences. Mm. Um, And I really, really feel that it's time for us to talk about those down periods in our life, those you yes. know, like we've we've all learnt the word furlough recently, which I think is actually a very, very useful word for the future because yes. we've all experienced furloughs actually. Um and times when we feel like an outsider, times when we feel humiliated, like we've failed, like we've been shut out, like we're no longer welcome, and times when we just can't scramble our way back up to the top again. Um mm. and I sincerely believe that it's time that we realize they're part of the normal life cycle and that we started to share them and that when we look at other people's fallow periods we don't do that awful default that we can do of thinking yeah but what did they do wrong like what mistake did they make that I wouldn't dream of making Mm -hmm. and I think that's our kind of self-protective instinct but instead to look at people and just feel empathy for the horrible moments that we go through sometimes and to think well I may not have done this but I can really understand how that feels so that's my preamble but I know that in your book um, Tender you talk about those moments in your own life um, Mm. and it's in the context of you having been a carer in two different ways really yeah I it's as soon as I read Wintering I completely recognized that feeling Mm. and definitely the first time I experienced it was when I was a teenager and I was helping to support my mother um it definitely felt like a wintering period definitely um and I think I was my mum was ill from started when I was around 11 Mm. 
Um, and then she died when I was 22. But I would say the period between 13 and 15 was a really acute period that I would right. definitely look back on as a wintering period. That's um, a really hard moment in your life for that to come, isn't it? Because it's such a revolutionary point of oh, your lifespan. You know what? Like, I, I remember um, I saw a, a play therapist for my son when he was when he was young mm. and she made some comment about a, a teenager she was work, also working with about it being 14 and 14 is is universally the worst year of most people's lives. And I thought, oh, I thought that was just me. She's like, no, no, no. I think from a psychological point of view, actually 14 is quite a kind of difficult, pivotal moment in most people's lives Mm. on that cusp between childhood and adulthood. And it's a very big transition Period. I actually also think that the people who feel on top when they're 14 never recover from that again. Like, I almost think it's a privilege to have a, a terrible 14. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I actually really, I completely agree with that. It's funny. I, I think um, I think it was when I was in my, perhaps maybe when I was at university or in my early 20s, I remember looking back and thinking, you know, what? I'm actually really glad I didn't have mm. a super fantastic, easy teenage years. Even that early, I could see that it had given me a lot of advantage. Yeah. Um, I mean, perhaps even by the time I was 18, I could see that I had some advantages that some other people didn't have. And um, and I really, really believe that. It's not just a kind of, um, you know, silver lining thing. I think it really yeah. did give me something that I'm, I carry with me That's amazing. now. Yeah. So, so tell me about your mum. She, you know, would, would you call it depression or would you say that it was more than that? Or Yes, it was. Well, it so. started off, it started off as panic attacks when I was 11 um and and then I think quite quickly grew into depression and the thing that was interesting about my mum was that she's she was very self-aware and really articulate and she she talked to me about all of it so over that period of 11 years that she was ill we had a lot of conversations about this she didn't hide anything from me Mm. so um so a lot of what I'm going to say has come out of conversations with her at the time but um but she she hadn't she had experienced she thinks postnatal depression with my eldest brother she had a very traumatic birth with him and she almost died and she realized much later looking back by the time she was ill again you know many many years later when I was a teenager she realized that she had experienced postnatal depression then so it wasn't the first time she'd experienced any kind of mental illness but it was the first time she kind of recognized yeah recognized it um and it sounds so, like she really had to recognise it as well. It sounds like... Oh, gosh, yeah. Because she, it started off as panic attacks and it was difficult because we had just moved to a farm outside mm. of Melbourne. So we were very dependent on the car. My dad um, works in film and he travels constantly, so he wasn't really around. And, um, and we had to drive 10 minutes just to get to the school bus. So we were very isolated. Right. And um, my mum's panic attacks were brought on by the car. So it was, she was quite terrified every day of getting in the car because her panic attacks ha- wow, it sometimes hard. was so severe that she thought she was having a heart attack. So, so it was, she sort of, I guess then what often happens, I guess, with very severe panic attacks is then you live in fear of the panic attacks and then it's yeah. the fear that becomes then crippling. Um, so I think then that very much then quickly led to um, depression and uh I didn't actually really talk about this in the book, but but I I think one of the problems that we talked about over the years after that was that she didn't get great care initially. Yeah. Um, and she was put on Xanax, which was highly addictive. Right. And that caused a lot of problems for her. I mean, um, I, I, caused... I feel like 
women of our mother's generation did not get support for their mental health problems full stop no you know no it, it I mean it just wasn't there it, it really wasn't and I think even though she had she did get a psychiatrist quite early on we were very fortunate my parents had um, health insurance in mm. Australia and so she was able to get a psychiatrist and support but I think the support was poor um, even though it was there if you know what I mean yeah, yeah. Um, and so that led to uh, a Xanax addiction which um, led to her starting to drink without realizing it right. so without realizing it her very normal drinking turned into heavy drinking mm. as she tried to wean herself off the Xanax um, they're in a I think gosh anyone listening who's actually a psychiatrist is probably gonna tell me I got this wrong but I think they're in the same <laughs> they're in the same family okay um, and so if you you could be addicted to um, to one and it could lead to an addiction in another wow. in the other because they're quite they're kind of in the same family um, yeah. so by the time I was 13 uh, my parents split up um, and weirdly, actually, I thought that was going to improve things because we left the farm um, because the farm was way too much for my mum. It was yeah. too huge. The house was huge. Uh, we were isolated. It was just the wrong place for her to be when she was unwell. And so we moved back into the suburbs and I thought, oh, great, things are going to get much better. And, and actually, she really, really descended and had a full breakdown. And, you know, it led to her being in her bed for weeks and weeks at a time um, and completely isolating herself even though we weren't physically isolated anymore that must have been so hard for you as a teenager to be coping with looking after your mother in that way I think like so many carers I just didn't realize it was happening until much later mm. I you just as it happens you just adjust and you um you take I started taking over doing some of my mum's things and then before I realized that she wasn't really doing anything um, yeah. It was, it, it happens, yeah, it happens almost without you realising it. And and because at this point I was able to be independent, like walk to the train station to get to school and things like that. Um, so she, I didn't have to be dependent on her, which did help. But it did mean that I was, we were basically left to ourselves a lot of the time. Um, and then um, I, by the time I was 14, um, she had a, had a number of suicide attempts by that by about that point and you you were aware of those as a 14 year old I was I'm still not sure how many there were right. so I wasn't aware of all of them um there was the one that I that was very much a turning point for me when I was 14 um I uh was coming home from school and it was quite a long walk from the train station and I think I must have had an after-school activity it was an unusual time for me to be getting home and so my mum had said oh call me at the train station when you get in and I will um I'll come down was down in the car and pick you up because it was late or something mm. so I did I called the house and eventually um we did my mum did have a paid carer by this point for a few hours a few times a week right and she answered the phone and I was like, oh, where's mum? She said she would come and pick me up. She's like, um, I just, uh, I, I will come and get you, but I'm just, I'm, I can't leave right this minute, but I'll be, start walking, just start walking. And I was like, what? Start walking. It's like three miles and it's late. And I was really grumpy. I was very grumpy. <laughs> I was 14. I was very grumpy. I was like, fine. So I kind of hung up the phone, started walking. About 20 minutes later, she pulled up next to me in my mum's car. And let me in. I was like, what's going on? And she said, oh, I, I, um, I didn't want to tell you over the phone, but the ambulance was there and they were still there. And I didn't want, I didn't want you to see it. Wow. And so I just, I wanted you to walk for 20 minutes so that they had left uh, and they had taken her away. 
So that was the first time I was really aware of it. Um, But I think there had been other times because she was in and out of hospital quite a lot. So um, again, because of her private health insurance, she was able to be hospitalized um, in a kind of safe and comfortable place. Mm. So we were were very fortunate. So um, that was was a big turning point for me because from that point on, it became really clear to me that my mum's life was definitely in danger. So anything unusual that happened... I expected to find her dead. You must have so been I would so come home. Alert to that. That that thought was and I frightening. It, it was and I, I. It's hard to explain. I think it. It's almost wasn't conscious either. It's this, in the same way now that when I go out and about with my son who needs a lot of support to keep him safe, I'm just on alert all the time for any potential danger. Mm. And it's that kind of high alertness that yeah. can be quite exhausting as a carer. And I think. And that's when that really started. Probably it was around the time of that of that particular suicide attempt because I was so aware of it. And um, but it wasn't it wasn't it's what's hard to explain to people sometimes is it, it wasn't like that all the time. So she would go yeah. through a really terrible phase. There might be a suicide attempt or just a crisis point. She would go off to hospital for a couple of weeks. She would get put on a new medication. She would not be drinking. It would be going really well. She'd be all gung ho and positive about moving forward and she would you know come home and she might be quite well for a few weeks or Mm. even a month or two and then slowly would start to go down and it would go down and down and down and down and down until we're at crisis point again and that was a cycle that happened um from when I was 13 to when she died when when she was behind 22 so that was kind of an ongoing cycle so we would go through lots of different phases so she had good phases and she had really bad phases it wasn't always consistent if you know what I mean and did you did you feel like you could tell friends at school about this or no no it must no. have been incredibly isolating i i don't think i had words for it yeah i just didn't have words for it i i don't i think they vaguely knew what was happening um it wasn't that i hid it and anyone who came to my house knew that my mum wasn't that well and wasn't her usual self she was a very loved Mm. mum amongst Mm. friends if you know what i mean um and so and also many of them had known her since primary school so so people did know her um i'm sure the parents talked about it a little bit as well probably at home at you know my friends houses but um but we didn't talk i didn't talk openly about it at all yeah Uh, i don't um i don't know why except the only thing I can pinpoint is that I just didn't have even the language to describe it. No, I th- I think you're absolutely right. And I think, I mean, there's obviously there's been a lot of talk the last few years about mental health and some people really don't like that and think that we're all going soft somehow. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think it's actually such a radical act to develop a vocabulary around a kind of illness that so many people have suffered from in complete silence for so long yeah and I think my mum as well um was a a a volunteer vice president of a cancer patients organization that she'd been involved in since I was very small and when in so this was in the 90s that she was very unwell and and she used to say to me I wish I had cancer wow because she felt very much dropped by a lot of people Right. And I don't think they meant to. I think they didn't know how to talk to her. They didn't know how to be a friend to somebody who would sometimes be okay and then disappear for weeks or months. Mm-hmm. Um, and and nobody had the language around it. And people thought it was her fault. Yeah. Um, and that she wasn't trying hard enough 
to get better. Um, and she felt that she was blamed. She's yeah, she felt yeah. she was blamed for her own illness in a way that she knew that cancer patients that she had worked with for years were not blamed for their own illness. Um, and yeah, so I remember that very, very clearly. And the thing that's interesting is that so mental health then became a very open conversation in our house over my teenage years, mm. but it just, just, it took a long time for that to translate to, to me to being able to talk with. about it outside yeah. the house. Um, that took quite a lot of time. And you'd left home by the time she finally took her own life. I, yeah, so I ended up going to boarding school when I was 15 because I was not coping with mm. the suicide attempts and the, yeah, and that yeah, I just wasn't coping. And I asked my dad if he would pay for me to go away to school. And he was, I think, thrilled, <laughs> thrilled that he could do something because he actually was living in America by this point. Um, and living with him was never going to be an option. Um, and so I, I went off to boarding school. That made a huge difference in my life. Um, my mom was not happy about it, but she did adjust to it and she could see that it was important for me. Yeah. And then I moved back home after school to go to university. So I lived with my mom throughout university. And then I moved to London and she died six weeks later. Wow. That's hideous. I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's, it's funny cause I'm the youngest. I have two older brothers and it was almost, I felt at the time it was almost as if she had just been clinging on mm. and clinging on and trying so hard and she was exhausted and done and she knew that we were grown up. Mm. And I think in a way it might have been that she just couldn't, like in that moment she was so exhausted with all the trying she had done for so many years um, that yeah. she knew that we would be okay. And it, I mean, I think in she a way... She was the best mother she could be. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the difference between her dying at 14 and, and when it was, when I thought it was going to happen and at 22, I mean, I can't tell you. I mean, the difference yeah. is enormous. And it, it, it made, it has made all the difference to my life that I had her for those extra years. Oh, that's lovely. And, what and I will to always, <laughs> well, I will always be grateful that she tried as long as she did, because it really did make a huge difference. Because even though those years were difficult, they gave me so much. And also they weren't, difficult every moment you know we had some really fantastic times as well as hard times so yeah no I, I'll always be grateful for how long she she kept on well she sounds kind of wonderful actually and I you know I strongly relate to her struggles actually and I just think it's great to be able to tell her story from someone who loves her so much so I mean thank you for sharing that I really oh, it's, I'm really it's moved been, by it well it's really I wanted to share her story with the book. I thought it was really, really important. I think for a number of reasons, it's not just because I was her carer, but also because I think part of the reason she got as ill as she did was because that she cared for others. Right. And, you know, she was very much a career mother in the sense, you know, she left her job in PR as soon as my eldest brother was born and had no intentions of going back. Loved being a mother, absolutely thrived on being a mother, adored it. And that was what she wanted to do. And it was her choice. Um, and, you know, if she had wanted to work more, she she could have, but mm. she didn't want to. Um, and I think she had put herself first and first and oh, last, sorry, last all the time <laughs> and put everything else first. And it was when she became very ill that she realized that how how untenable that was. Yeah. And she really regretted it. She didn't regret 
ever being a mother she loved it it was her favorite thing that she ever did <laughs> but um but she regretted not taking care of herself and it's something we talked about a lot before she died um about her regrets and it was something that I always promised myself that I wouldn't do and and here so, you are now sharing with everyone else how to how to be a carer how to look after yourself as a carer yeah I just think it's it's so important because um, when you put yourself last all the time, in the end, everybody else suffers. Yeah. It just, you know, my my mother um, put herself last and then her needs then became so acute yeah. that, that she couldn't do anything else but care for herself. Um, and And in the end, we all suffered because of it. You know, we, we, all of us lost her far yeah, too young, sure. you know. I mean, so I just think it's such a short-term thinking to always put yourself last. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's the message that, that women hear over and over again in particular that, you know, our duty is to throw ourselves under the bus for our children. And I just, I think it's just time for a more nuanced conversation about how you can love someone and want to do absolutely the best for them but that best isn't you being completely broken absolutely Mm. yeah so absolutely you more recently um care for became a carer I suppose I don't know (laughs) do you become a carer are you born a carer I don't know um for your son (laughs) um let's talk a little bit about him because I see him coming past on my um, Instagram feed and he's gorgeous um, <laughs> he is he is <laughs> tell us about him <laughs> Arthur is he's 10 now um and he was diagnosed as autistic when he was three um over the years it's become clear that he also has learning difficulties he's he can speak but um I, I he would still probably be be partly classified as non-speaking because um, he's right. not what I would call conversational. Um, although his 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 vocabulary is improving all the time, and um, uh, yeah, so yeah, mm. it's but it's a different. He he communicates differently. Um, he goes to a special school um, who are fantastic, That's especially too, yeah. in the current crisis. They have just been phenomenal, um, and he's. A whirlwind in my life. <laughs> he's um, I've we've often said he's he's like living with an opera because he's all highs and lows and nothing in between. It's very dramatic in our house all the time. Um, he's incredibly affectionate and physical and has very intense sensory needs, um, and um, and he's very joyful as well. Um, and also he's very explosive. Right. So yeah, he's a whirlwind. He's a wonderful whirlwind. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I think, I, I don't know if everyone listening will know that I'm also, also autistic um, and that, you know, most, uh, the folk understanding of autism is so different from the reality. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we talk about the autistic spectrum, but I, I like to see it more as a kind of constellation, really. There's so yeah. many different ways to be autistic. But actually, it's probably quite rare for an autistic adult to be in conversation with an, a, an, a parent of an autistic child like this because I think so often there's opposition in those re- relationships which I find really really tragic um, it is tragic it's so tragic and that was had to be the absolute key for me for this book was that um I just I needed to bridge those 
I really, yeah. really wanted to bridge that. Um, and in fact, so one of the carers I speak to is also autistic in the book. Mm. He has autistic children and he also um, cared for his father when he was dying as well. Um, and that to me was so important. His perspective is so interesting to me. Um, and I just, I, I really truly believe that what carers need and what disabled people need and what autistic people need, um, some of whom don't identify as disabled, um, uh, we all kind of need the same thing, but we coming at it from different angles. Yeah. Um, and they're not, there needs to be far more listening to the disabled perspective and the autistic perspective, far, far, far more listening. I think we need to listen to each other, though, because I think, I mean, as you've just identified there, so many carers of autistic children are autistic themselves. You know, there's a strong oh, yes. genetic element yes, in autism. Absolutely. And I I think we have to, you know, be incredibly careful to find this balance of respectful language towards autistic people and, and other disabled groups, um, but also listening to people who are struggling to cope sometimes with their caring mm. responsibilities it's it's incredibly hard you know it's incredibly hard to care for a newborn baby <laughs> we're not even allowed to talk about that and yeah. I, I don't think that it necessarily shows a terrible attitude towards autism itself to say I'm really struggling to cope with this right now and I don't know how to do it you know I don't know how well, to best do it well, that, that's so interesting you compare it to look after a newborn because that was actually when it really clicked for me was was when I realised the conversation around postnatal depression was getting larger. Mm. I was like, there's, I don't think there's a person on earth that says to a woman who has depression, oh, well, it's your baby's fault. <laughs> no. <laughs> and yet there is this attitude if a carer, a parent carer is is feeling depressed that, oh, it's it's your autistic child's fault mm. and people do say that yeah. people do there is there is this idea that um that if a carer is struggling it's because it's the fault of the the person they're supporting yeah. and I just find that like it just makes me want to tear my hair out really <laughs> that that insinuation and it is I think you can compare it to saying that a, a mother with postnatal depression is you know it's the baby's fault yeah. um that the, baby's being really demanding right now. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and the thing is, it's like, you know, we need support as new mothers. We absolutely need support as new mothers. We also need support as carers. As carers. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't mean it's the fault of the person that we're supporting, that we're no. that we're having a hard time with it. It's never my son's fault. Um, and it's interesting because also I've got an, I've got a daughter as well who's who's not disabled. And we have to have these conversations all the time. Because, you know, something will happen. There'll be a very big, ugly meltdown. I might get hurt mm. in it. And my daughter, and I'll be, I'll be upset. And my daughter will be like, um, she has occasionally said to me, um, I wish Arthur wasn't autistic. Mm. And, and I've said to her, look, I'm not really okay with you saying that. I'm, I'm okay with you saying, I wish it wasn't this hard. I wish he didn't get upset so easily. I wish we, and I sort of say, I wish I could help him more than I can mm. but um but I sort of say to her look in it's not okay in front of him to say that you wish he wasn't autistic because it's such a part of who he is it's sort of an integral part that we can't separate yeah. um that I think we have to be careful you know because it's not his fault no you know it's is. like saying to a toddler um stop falling over you know <laughs> <laughs> like 
No, I mean, it's just part of the learning process. That's, you know, you fall over a lot when you're a toddler, you know. Um, you know, my son's at different developmental stages than his peers um, and he processes information really differently and he gets very scared and anxious because of the way he processes that, that yeah. information and it doesn't make it easy to deal with, but there are always reasons behind it. Um, yeah, so it's... Well, I, and I think... I mean, I like since I got my diagnosis, I have become the person that, you know, other mothers come to when their kids get a diagnosis. And I'm really proud to be that person that can talk to talk about the internal perspective of being autistic. But what I've noticed is that people get no help or training in understanding why their autistic child is reacting as they do. Mm. And what's more, I see so many people come to me with language that I find really offensive that they've been given by their mental health team. You know, things like resistant, aggressive, you know, Mm -hmm. rage. Somebody used the term autistic rage to me the other day as if it were a a kind of thing. And I, What, you mean human rage? (laughs) Yeah, human rage. But but actually, rage rage is, you know, is about kind of universal fear as you know, but when you when you see an autistic person, what looks like rage, it's normally a kind of overwhelm response or a fear response. But yeah, absolutely. If neurotypical parents or parents who, you know, might not be neurotypical, but don't identify as autistic, aren't ever let into this understanding of of why an autistic person might be behaving as they are, how are they ever supposed to cope with it or come to terms? And instead, yeah. I just I feel like the support isn't there and I, I think that's a terrible thing the support is definitely not there we were given zero support yeah. when Arthur was diagnosed and the support I have now is much better mm. mainly because he's at a fantastic school because he spent the first three years at a mainstream school and it's a school I love my daughter goes there they're really they're wonderful people yeah they mean well but they don't know right what they're talking about yeah oh, well it's not just not right it's not it wasn't it definitely wasn't right environment been, but also it wasn't <laughs> Well, there was two things going on. One is that the environment was 100% wrong for him. Of course, there's just too many children there in too small space. Um, But also, they really didn't understand autism at all. Mm. Um, And they, you know, you would think that, like, they say, well, we've had training. Well, they've they've had two days training. Oh, but have you seen the content of some of that training? (laughs) And the content, exactly. And the content is questionable. But even when it's been delivered by my son's school, Mm because they have outreach teams, um, and I know the content's, you know okay it's two days two years ago I mean they don't and also I think what happens more in mainstream schools this happens a lot they have one autistic student or two autistic students that they've had for years and they expect all of the autistic students to be like that that becomes the definition and and, um and it takes it took a yeah it took a really long time for for me to kind of get across them no 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 you just need to look at my son and what he needs and not what you think he needs um but so the support I have now is much much better but um but if anyone comes to me and asks about it, first of all, I don't know anything about autism particularly. I am not an expert. I don't think I know very much about it. I've learned a lot about my son. And so really what I, if anyone asks me, what I urge them to do is, is read autistic writers. To me, that's like the most important thing you can do as a parent is to understand the autistic perspective. I think particularly if you don't feel like you identify at all as autistic, which I don't, I feel like my, I look back at my childhood experience and it, and the way I look at things and it is very different to how I look at uh, how my son perceives the world, I think. Mm. So, um, in a way that I can look at my daughter and I can kind of get an idea for how she might be thinking and feeling by remembering back to how I 
felt in certain situations when I was a child, but I, I can't really do that with my son. I find it really difficult. I think our experiences have been very different. Mm. So to me, reading autistic writers has been the most, the, the absolutely most important thing that I've done as a carer. Um, because I, you know, a professional can't tell me, um, what an autistic person can tell me quite frankly no I think that's really true and it's really good to see more own voices narratives getting out there I I'm you know a great champion of them and I've written one myself obviously but um yes but even so I'm really conscious that that by no means represents oh absolutely a a global concept and and nobody and no one narrative does um but I think it can help us to understand from a different perspective even even though of course that perspective is not going to be identical to our child's Mm. I mean I always recommend the reason I jump to parents because it was written by um Naoki Higashida when he was 14 so I think that's really important as well because he was a teenager when he wrote it um rather than a grown-up and I and and I also just love the question it's a question and answer um book and it's so beautiful so beautiful the way he writes is so beautiful but also I just I love it because it's so the question and answer format is so accessible um and one of them is why do you jump and Mm -hmm. you know and things like that um and he I love the way he explains how things are internally for him it really helped me Mm. um understand a little bit more from Arthur's perspective it's amazing so just to finish um I just, I kind of, I was, I was about to say, would you say that being a carer for Arthur has been a wintering period for you? But I, but actually, I, I'm always really interested by how you find the balance about the way you talk about that. You know, you talk about the hardships, but at the same time, talk about the kind of the privileges and the intimacy of being mm. a carer. And you've always got an eye on the political dimension of it too, I think. Well, I think I would describe those first year or two um, when his his challenges were becoming clearer as a wintering period. Mm. And I would describe it that way because I did feel very isolated at that point. Um, yeah. I think from about the age of 18 months when I was, I was pregnant with his sister at that point, his behaviour was diverging from his peers mm. quite significantly um, to the point where I, I, my experience was unrecognisable compared to my friends, I think, yeah, you know, I would, yeah. I would sort of be around a difference going on. Well, I would be around friends and they'd be saying this and that and laughing about something. And I would be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> like I just genuinely had no idea what they were talking about. Um, at one point, one of my friends, uh, twins were, were playing and doing something and asking her a question about something. It's about falling leaves and why are they brown and whatever. And I think the kids are about two. And she just, and they had, she had a little chat with them and she looked at me and she said, oh, it's just, isn't it amazing how they're just so curious and they're such sponges? And I just was like, no, that's <laughs> not, not my experience that. at all. Yeah. I mean, Arthur didn't seem, actually, he did not seem curious mm. at all. And I, and I look back now, of course, I, I you know, he's very anxious and he was very overwhelmed from a sensory point of view. I think, um, often. So, um, so I think that really shut a lot of his curiosity down because he was just dealing with, yeah um yeah overwhelmed a lot of the time of, i think of sensory input. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly so it's not that he is not a curious kid he is but he it's really hard for him to stay regulated so when he's dysregulated he can't be curious mm. um and so yeah so there was a there was a period of a couple of years really from sort of 18 months to three and a half where i felt like my experience of parenthood was um was otherworldly 
and it yeah. didn't match anyone else's. Um, and I think particularly when my daughter was born, because it became really clear that they were very different. Um, and as she grew, I was a bit like, wow, yes, I'm, they're different. I've got two very, very different children. Mm. Um, and now, now I see in my daughter what other people are talking about. So that period, I would say there was a good couple of years where it definitely yeah. felt like um, it was a, my, my experience as, as a mother was felt isolated. But you said that you began to pass your book on to professionals who you know surround you and that they're really getting insights from it one of the interviewees in the book is a very very old dear friend um is recently retired gp and he now cares for his wife who has alzheimer's and you know he said to me that um he had no idea what it was like and he wishes he had known as a gp he wishes he would known what it was like to care for somebody because he said he just he put all of his focus and his attention onto his patients yeah um, and he just, he said he barely even looked at the carer and he wished he'd given them more support. Uh, and for me, when that moment happened in that interview, I was just like, oh, this is so much bigger than I thought it was. This is not just about supporting. I, I mean, I hope carers read the book. I wrote it for them, but I now I, I realized after that point that actually it was much bigger than that. I think, I think we as a society, whether that's health professionals or teachers or our politicians, you know, we need to understand the perspective of carers because I mean there are so many of us and we will almost all of us we will do it we will all do it at some point in our lives and 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 so I think that's where the power of support yeah yeah and well this is the power of stories I think Mm. I think you know stories are incredibly powerful for this reason um I think so many people don't speak about their experience as carers because well, there's a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of different reasons, yeah. but you know, um, you know, there's I think a lot of shame about about difficult feelings that you have when you're caring for somebody that you love, and I think so often you do want to do it, but you still have really hard feelings around it, and it's really hard to square those two things together. Um, but also, you know, you might be protecting the person you care for. You might not even realise that's what you're doing. I know for me, I didn't even know the term young carer until I was probably about thirty, yeah. and my mother had been dead for eight years. So I think the more that we share stories, um, the more that other people can recognise themselves in our stories as well. And in fact, already in the past few weeks, I've already had messages from people who have been linked up because they, the book is coming out and I'm, I'm getting more people popping along to uh, Instagram. And I've had messages from people saying, I didn't even know I was a carer and now I do. Thank you. Yeah. Penny, thank you so much. It's been so amazing to talk. Um, oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. It's just been great. And thank you so much for sharing your wintering moments. Your book, <laughs> Tender, is out on the 11th of June. And I hope um, everybody who needs a copy will have a copy in their hands by then, because I, I just think it's such a testament to the power of kindness and love, as well as to exploring the difficult parts of life that maybe are quite invisible. So congratulations on it. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Catherine. And I can't wait to listen to the rest of the podcast. I'm very excited about it. Thank you. That's all for this first episode of the Wintering Sessions with the brilliant Penny Winter. Check the show notes for links to her social feeds and details of her book. And if you enjoyed listening, please hit subscribe and share this with your friends. It really helps. Thanks for being here from the beginning. See you next time.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.